So what we're doing on Sunday nights right now is we are um, we're doing some some talks here, but I prefer to call these episodes because that's eventually what they're going to become. Um, you can always find these at the same place on the website, westark.org, under sermons, and the list will be there like it always is. But as soon as we figure out how to do this, as soon as I figure out how to do my part, this is going to be turned into a series that you'll be able to find wherever you get podcasts. And that may not be, that may not mean as much to all of you because you're here, but the podcasts are going to be for the ones who are not here. So uh, this is episode one. So let's get started with this. Uh, this is episode one of basic, what every Christian ought to know. And the place we're going to begin is with this question, what is the Bible? Every Sunday at the Lakewood Church in Houston, whenever Joel Osteen gets up, he always starts his message the same way. He holds up a Bible and he says, this is my Bible, I am what it says I am, I can do what it says I can do. And it's a tradition that his father, John Osteen, started. Uh, Joel is not without his critics, and he has people who uh, say that that's about the most Bible you're going to get out of his uh, sermons, and seems awful mean. But uh, I, I get what he's saying, and I appreciate the message, but what is the Bible exactly? I, I mean, we take it for granted that we know what it is, but what really is it? Uh, where does it come from? Why should this one book determine who I am and determine what I can do? Where does it come from? If you uh, look into other religious traditions, they have some origin about their holy scripture. Um, for some, the Bible comes straight from heaven. The Bible is delivered in some miraculous way. Joseph Smith meets an angel in the new nation, the United States, uh, in this new country, this new land. He's shown the original golden plates that come from heaven. He has to transcribe them, and that's how you get the Book of Mormon. A revelation to Muhammad becomes the Koran, the perfect word-for-word, word without error message that is delivered from God straight to Muhammad. And it's without error. And in its original language, it is without error. In fact, it's not even meant to be translated. The Bible doesn't have such an origin story. There's no magic or mystical or religious story of where it comes from. In fact, the Bible doesn't come from just one era, but it represents different periods of time, different writers, uh, different communities that are owning parts of it. The Bible is, and this is what I find really interesting, is even self-referential. What that means is the Bible is aware of itself. And, and here, here's, here's why I think that's particularly interesting. Because it means that a tradition is being built up around the Bible even as the Bible is being developed. One of my favorite self-referential moments in movies 
is in uh, the 1969 James Bond film, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. This is the first film where they made a, J- a James Bond movie without Sean Connery. And, and the movie starts out, and you've got the uh, Australian actor. He's really just a model, but Australian actor George Lazenby, and he's playing James Bond. And, and, the, and the adventure starts out, all of the James Bond stuff you expect. They've been doing James Bond movies for, for seven years now, and you don't see him until finally he walks up to the girl, and he gets slapped in the face, and she runs off. He turns around, he looks into the camera and says, this never happened to the other fella. That's classic. That's cool right there. Because it's a little nod to the audience that says, yeah, this is a James Bond movie, but I'm not that guy. The Bible even does that with itself. It says, hey, there's scripture. And it's scripture saying that there's scripture. Uh, Paul, whose letters will become recognized as scripture by the the following generations of Christians, says that all scripture is inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3.16. And yet, even as he's writing that, he's writing Scripture, but he's referring to a long-standing tradition of Scripture that predates him, that there is this collection of writings that is in some way the Word of God, and yet written by people just like him. Uh, Hebrews has that image of Scripture being sharper than a double-edged sword, talking about its purpose, talking about its power. And yet Hebrews, which becomes such foundational scripture for the people of God, is referring to scripture that goes on for thousands of years before it. When we talk about Bible and we talk about scripture, we're talking about items. The Bible does not even use a special word for what it is. The Bible is just book. I mean, that's what we get. We take the Greek word biblos, which means book or scroll, and we invent a special title for it. But the title of your Bible is book. (laughs) And when we talk about scripture, we we tend to refer to religious scripture, uh, things that are very meaningful to us and in in a... in a divine or a holy or a religious context, in a church context. But scripture is simply a writing. It's a message. It's something written. I think this is why Eugene Peterson, I, I imagine when he was trying to translate the Bible and, and, or update and paraphrase the Bible into the kind of English that we speak now and at this time, he chooses to call it the message. It's just a message which is actually very appropriate. To say that it's just a message doesn't mean that it's not important, but to say that it is simply a message, even a very important one from God, that's the wonder. And what's great about the Bible is that it comes to us just like Jesus in a very ordinary way, and yet it's it's filled with divine presence and power. Um, You see a lot of different references in the Bible where it will refer to book or books or scrolls or scriptures. And here, it's not just one book referring to itself. It's different books and different writings referring to other writings. 
and that happens a lot throughout Scripture. One of the ways to think of the Bible is to think of the Bible as a book of books. It's what we would call an anthology. And an anthology uh, brings together, it's one container or one, one series, one set that brings together a, a lot of different stories, a lot of different writings that are related in some way. The, uh, what we have is really an earlier anthology. We're comfortable calling it the Old Testament. Some prefer to call it the Hebrew Bible. It, what it what, it, what it's called in the tradition where it was formed is the Tanakh, and we'll get to that in a second. And then we have the New Testament, uh, which Christian believers, the Christian church, holds as important and accepts and recognizes as Scripture. Now, uh, those of the Jewish faith may not accept the New Testament as inspired writings, but we have the same Bible that, that they have. And, and that's something we'll probably talk about later on in, uh, in this series. But this, um, this thing called the Tanakh, uh, Tanakh, Tanakh's not really a word, it's an acronym. And if you take the T and the N and the K in the Hebrew letters that those represent, what you would have are the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And these are simply Hebrew words for law, prophets, and writings. Nothing fancy about the title, nothing unique. I mean, it's in a different language, but if we could hear it, if we could hear Hebrew the way we hear English, we would hear law, prophets, and writings. And yet, what does Jesus consider Scripture when he says that not the stroke of a pen or the, the, the single smallest letter will pass away from what? The law and the prophets. He talks a lot about the law and the prophets. He's referring to this. This is how they understood it. They understood that that collection of scrolls had different catalogs or categories, that there was that, those, those original five books which made up the, uh, we would say book, maybe they would say scrolls, but it, it is the law. It, is, it, it has to do with what Moses took from God and then passed on to the people to teach them how to live. And then there were the prophets who came after that, and they, uh, they, their, their story and the story that they represent in relationship uh, between God and his people become the writings that we call the prophets. And there's a there's a lot of variety in that. You have books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, that have to do with the stories of prophets, and then you have uh, some writings like like Amos and uh, Habakkuk, which are simply the words of the prophets, and some are a combination of the two. But they're all collected together as an important development in the revelation of God, where we've. We've taken the law and we've taken the meaning of the instruction and now the prophets are applying it and delivering it and proclaiming it and preaching it to the people in a way that is meant to be transforming and changing of the people. And then you have the writings, which is kind of the catch-all of everything else that doesn't fit into one of those two major categories. 
And the writings are made up of the Psalms and the Proverbs and Job. And again, these are not unimportant books. Psalms, in fact, contain some of the oldest material that we have in the full collection called the Bible, that we call the Bible. Uh, but they, they exist as songs. They exist as poetry. They exist as something lyrical that we can remember and rehearse, and it describes the way we, uh, uh, we feel and the way that we speak to God and the way that we listen to God and the way we argue with God even. Proverbs are words of wisdom that are generally true that, we, uh, that we, we instruct one another with. And then you have what are called the five scrolls. And this is the Song of Songs, the Book of Ruth, uh, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. That's an odd collection, I know. But they're just called the, the five scrolls. They are considered scripture, but they don't fit easily into the law or prophet categories. And then you have other books that are probably coming along at a later time period, like Daniel, and then you have Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles, which all seem to have the same uh, historical, well, they would say on Antiques Roadshow, the historical provenance of the, of the materials. So uh, this is what you get when you look through. Now, that may not be the order that your Old Testament Bible is arranged in. That's only because after the invention of the printing press, this is, this is how we started to do it, and it became standard in the West. But that's not always the way it was done, and these were collected and stored in different ways. By the way, this development of the Tanakh, happens over nearly a thousand years or so, you know, give, it t- give or take a few hundred, depending on how you want to date these things. But you have centuries, at least, centuries of development. Think about that, that the development of the earliest writings that make up what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, and the later, the latest writings they are, if you take the two ends of that time span, they are as far apart from one another in time, at least as far apart as you and I are from the Magna Carta. Now think about that. Think about how far back. That may, they are as far apart in time as we are from the original illuminated manuscripts. Now, now think about that. What, how much history exists in that time span? And yet, that all gets developed over that time period and held together as the stories and the writings that define a people and their relationship with their creator and sovereign God. Now, the, the New Testament, on the other hand, develops within maybe a 50-year or so time span, give or take 10 years. So whereas we can talk about the Old Testament developing over centuries, the New Testament develops over decades. And it is dependent on the writings of the Old Testament. It it self-references the Old Testament. It understands it. It assumes it. 
It knows the stories of the Old Testament so that Paul and even uh, Jesus himself and the other writers of the New Testament will constantly quote from the Psalms and from Proverbs and from the prophets and the law. The New Testament is centered around certain things that develop over this 50-year or so period. You have the ministry of Jesus and you have the gospel event. And what happens in the gospel event is so significant that everything in the New Testament scripture revolves around that. That what happens in the life of Jesus and in his death, burial, and resurrection becomes, and I get, yeah, there's a pun here, it becomes crucial, and yet it's very appropriate. It becomes crucial to everything else that's written in the New Testament. Uh, Luke Acts is based, and it's, it's two volumes. Uh, you have the gospel, and then you have the continuation of Jesus and his spirit and his teaching in the... Uh, in the community of God's people. And the spirit of the risen Jesus is even present among them. It's a continuation of what Jesus is doing through his church. You have the letters of Paul, where Paul is taking the, the, the meaning and the revelation of the gospel, and he's writing to different groups of Christians. Sometimes he's writing to introduce himself. Sometimes he's writing to encourage his associates. Sometimes he's writing to correct them. Uh, in every case, uh, Paul is not setting out to write a new bestseller and to include it in an anthology called the Bible. But what he's doing is he's writing letters to do the work of ministry in the church. It's very practical, uh, you know, down-to-earth, brass-tack stuff. He's trying to, to help people. And he's trying to say some things that are going to help the church grow. You have other letters that are doing the same thing, most of them. Uh, again, writing to encourage people, writing to establish some things, writing to continue the truth of the gospel throughout generations. And then you have Revelation, which uh, is, is kind of unique, but it comes as, as sort of a, a last word, and, and it's, a, it's a vision that the Apostle John has to encourage people living in the end times. Now, I, I mean, of course, his view of end times, which is right there where he was on the scene, and yet it also applies for us as well. Uh, we'll probably talk about Revelation in later episodes. Here's another way to think of the organization of the New Testament, though. Um, <clears throat> you have, within the New Testament, you, you can start to see, and you can't be rigid about this, but you start to see groups of writings that are related and if you think about the spread of Christianity in the first century, they were centered around uh, different groups. They were all unified and all one, but there were regions of growth. And so those regions of growth were led by different apostles and teachers. And so you have um, Matthew, and if you've ever noticed, Matthew's language is a lot like James. And and. If James is James the brother of Jesus, it could be a different James, but most likely it's James the brother of Jesus, then he's regarded as a leader in the church. And if Matthew, as one of the disciples, is regarded as a leader in the church, then they both may be working out of the same perspective, and maybe they're working with the same community of Christians. And it's very possible that Jude is included in that as well, as he's part of that family with James. 
Mark, we're told by early Christian uh, writers in the second century and third century that, that Mark is writing the memoirs of Peter. Again, we can't be rigid about this, but there seems to be a lot of likely evidence that, that Mark is taking the, the gospel account as it's given to him by Peter. He's writing it down to preserve it. And then within that community of churches that, that recognizes Peter as a leader, then this and the letters of First and Second Peter are, are understood to be uh, writings that went to them. Now, again, you think about it. No one in that time period has a concept of global transmission. They're, they're not going to write a letter and think, hey, we're going to upload this to the Internet tomorrow and everybody's going to read it. They have a regional concept. Paul will say in, um, uh, in Ephesians, he'll say, now I want you to read the letter that I wrote to the Laodiceans and then you swap letters with them. And there is some idea that these groups are going to share some letters, but again, it's, it, it's regional, it's close by. And so it's very, it's very reasonable to believe that these leaders are set up in different um, uh, community groups and they have influence there. And then as time goes on and the, and the church is no longer hidden underground, sometimes because of persecution, these letters emerge and they get collected together. But they're going to have some resemblance to one another. Luke we know is a traveling companion of Paul. And, and, and Luke writes, Luke, he writes Acts. And if he's influenced by Paul, then you can see some similarities between his writings and Paul's letters and maybe even Hebrews. Maybe Paul wrote it. Maybe Luke wrote it. Maybe somebody else. But again, there's some similarity of thought there. Now, understand, all of these are working off of the same gospel. And yet... It's, it's, it's totally within the scope of the gospel that it can be described in different ways and understood in different ways. I mean, not understood however you want, but it can be, it can be spoken of with different analogies. Think of it like this. Jesus revealed to us the nature of God and the nature of the kingdom of heaven. And he didn't just do it with one parable. He did it with many parables. Because that's what it takes for people to understand. Can you imagine that somewhere in the audience of Jesus is someone, and he hears the parable about the, uh, the wheat and the tares, or he hears the parable about some uh, fellows working a field, a vineyard, and, and, and this, this poor fellow just, he's, never, he's been out in the, in the waters his whole life, he's been a fisherman, and he's saying, you know, I, I don't know, I understand some of that, but it's just, not, it's just not resonating with me, I don't get it, I don't get it. Then Jesus tells a parable about catching fish, and he's like, oh, I get that. Now, that makes sense. You see, depending on how you emphasize the gospel, it's going to connect with people in different ways. Same gospel, different ways of conveying it. Uh, John, of course, uh, writes his gospel, uh, and then the letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the Revelation, and, and they all... Uh, work with a community of Christians that we know that John had influence in the city of Ephesus and with people in Asia Minor and uh, in, in those uh, areas over there and especially into the later generations of the Christian church. That's just one way to look at the way your 
books of the New Testament or your letters and documents of the New Testament relate to one another. But where does it all begin? Where does it all come from? If we have this development over centuries, well, it all comes to us in different ways. There are songs that are passed down. Sometimes we know who wrote the song. Uh, sometimes there's an inscription. Sometimes it's a guess. Some of them are written by uh, Solomon, some by David, some by King Lemuel, sometimes by the singers, the sons of Korah. I mean, there's all sorts of different uh, ascriptions to these, and maybe they existed even before that. They're sort of like folk hymns. No one really knows where exactly it comes from, but we know that it's a long-standing tradition. We certainly know that David wrote some of them, that some of them are right from the, the heart and the voice of David. Uh, some of them are prophecies. You think about it, the prophecy, when it's first delivered, it is proclaimed publicly. Then it's written down. Sometimes it's a message that is written and sent. Sometimes it's a message that's proclaimed. Isaiah proclaims this message. Nobody wants to listen to it. And so he instructs his students to write it down and seal it up. And maybe a few generations from now, they'll hear what he had to say and they'll discover it. And they'll realize, well, Isaiah was speaking the truth after all, wasn't he? Um, sometimes it's an instruction that is given by God, sometimes spoken, sometimes written. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. God writes the tablets for him. Uh, he's told what to write. This, cre this, this activity of writing those tablets happened between God and Moses in private on the mountaintop. And then in Leviticus, you read the first few phrases of Leviticus and God is within the tent of his presence and he's calling out to Moses and to the community and saying now this is what you're going to do so that we can have some quality time together and it's God telling them what they should do but understand the writing the scripture comes to us first saying that when this was originally given it was given as a spoken word of God to his people and that happens in so many different forms you have stories that are told you have uh, writings that are delivered and sent Ezra and Nehemiah I, I've said in classes on Ezra and Nehemiah that those two books of the Bible are like a like a file folder a dossier of different uh, newspaper clippings and writings and reports and if you look there Though it'll record different periods of time and things that were sent and, and uh, letters that were sent by the, the Persian emperor and, and uh, other documents that, that keep all this together. And then the story is told that makes sense of it all. You have letters that are being written, letters within books, and then you have historical accounts that are being recorded. Luke says that he's recording the stories of the original eyewitnesses who were there of the people who experienced all of this and then he writes it down into his gospel and shares it do you see that there's a very living real dynamic process that goes on here it's not as if some writer is just uh saying okay god i, I want to hear let me just dictate what you say all in one setting but god is working within these real events and you can see god participating in this uh, most of the written parts of the Bible begin as something else, as stories that are passed down, stories that are transmitted, stories that are told. 
Stories that originate with God himself in some way. And, and again, what's so fascinating about this is God never chooses one way to reveal himself to Moses. It's a burning bush. And, you know, you read that story in Exodus and remember the original of that is Moses himself witnessing a burning bush and hearing the voice of God speak to him. Then it gets put down pen to paper. Uh, how, and think about all the times that that happens. And sometimes uh, you know, God appears in myriad ways. The writer of Hebrews says God finally reveals himself fully and completely in Jesus Christ. But we're going to save that for a later episode. Just understand the dynamic process here of where all of this comes from. It's, it's ordinary writing. And what I mean by that is um, there's, there's nothing mystical or, or magical about this. When in Revelation 1, when Jesus appears to John in a vision and he says, I want you to write on a scroll. Where is John when that happens? He's in jail. He's in prison on the Isle of Patmos. He's, he's in exile. What kind of special scroll is John going to have access to? What kind of magical pen, gilded in gold, is he going to have access to? He's going to have whatever he has. And yet, is this not the same God who when he sends Moses to the greatest power on earth. He sends him to Pharaoh and he says, I want you to represent me and go to this man who believes he's a God and demand that my people go. And what am I going to take with me to do this, Lord? And God says, what do you have in your hand? A stick? Use it. And God works through that stick, that staff, and again, don't imagine that it's some sort of gilded staff with jewels. He, the man's a goat herder. He, he's, he, this is some piece of a tree that's been left over, maybe whittled on a bit and, and uh, you know, worked over years working with these animals. Probably oily and dirty, and yet that is the staff that God chooses to reveal his power through. So if God can do that, then can't he also, through ordinary writing? Charcoal pencils and pens on paper. Can't he, can't he do that? Yes, he can. Simple correspondence. Sometimes with the help of a scribe. We see in Paul's later letters that he's hired someone to help him write this. You know, or he has, if he hasn't hired them, they're in his service. They're, they're friends. They're co-workers of his. Um, you see a combination in this. And by the way... It should not cause us any concern that this comes to us in very ordinary fashion. That, in fact, is what makes it so powerful. Is that God chooses to reveal himself. Not through something that is meant to uh, keep us at a distance, but something that's meant to draw us near and draw us close. You see the divine breath in Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. That's what it means to be inspired. That word inspiration comes from breathing. But you also see the human touch in it. 
inspired by God, but written by ordinary people. The opening lines of Luke's gospel to Theophilus, he says, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very beginning to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Nowhere in there is mention of the fact that Theophilus, I found the hidden secrets on silver-plated tablets written in uh, magical ink embedded on mithril and they only existed for 15 hours and then they disappeared and I know it was real Theophilus because there was a uh, uh, you know a group of angels carrying it in a golden briefcase you know, no no he could have said all that but that's not what happened He's just out there doing the investigative work saying, listen, these people have got a story. They witnessed something. They saw something. Something has changed. And the very fact that the people of God, Israel, cannot be stamped out. Their memory cannot be washed away by all the invasions and the different groups that, that, that dominated their nation. They still remained as a people with an identity. Why? Because they had a story with divine origin. The church goes through centuries of persecution, and yet it cannot stop. Why? Because they had a story. They had an account. They had the eyewitness accounts of people who were persecuted, who were threatened with death, and yet they kept on believing and kept on serving Jesus Christ. Uh, This is that story. This is what Luke wants to capture for the next generation and for us. And by the way, it's all written in language that everyone can understand. Old Testament is written in Hebrew. There's nothing particularly sacred or holy about Hebrew. It's just the language that they spoke. There's sections of it written in Aramaic. Uh, New Testament is written in what's called Koine Greek. Koine means common. It's, it's It's the common language. It's what people speak. It's not some special particular version of Greek meant only for religious purposes. It's the language they would have used in the marketplace. It's the language they would have used to do trading. It's the language that they would have used to write any sort of uh, writing you can imagine from uh, letters to laundry lists, you name it. It's everyday language. And yet that's one of the things that makes the Bible living and real. In fact, later on, copies are made of these writings. Copies are made of the originals, and then copies are made of the copies. And over the the centuries, all of this is passed on, and copies continue to be made so that more and more people can have this. And in um, in the first few centuries of the church, of the Christian church, in places where people don't speak Greek, There's no hesitation. It's translated. And some of what we know about the New Testament is because people translated it. They translated it into languages like Coptic and Syriac and Armenian and Ethiopic. And some of our copies of Scripture in those languages are older than our oldest Greek copies. That means that we can look back at, you know, we have our Greek copies and we say, okay, it says this. And then we can look back a few centuries. We can look at what it says in Coptic and then we say, hey, we re- it's sort of like reverse engineering. We, we reverse translate it and then we realize, you know what, that, that's, that's 
pretty accurate transmission there. Because if we translated that back into Greek, it would pretty much say the same thing. And it might help us in a few spots make some determination where there's some, some minor adjustments here and there. But uh, the originals, we don't have them. And that's because they were utilitarian documents. When Paul wrote those letters, he meant for them to be read. They would open up a letter. Scriptures like Philippians, and we got a letter from the Apostle Paul today. I want everybody to hear it. They didn't make photocopies and hand it out and say, look, it's in your bulletin. we got to do other stuff. we got some announcements to make. Here you go. You can go read Paul's letter on your own. No. That would have been the message of the day. Let's gather together. Let's hear what Paul has to say. And then once, the, once it had been spoken out loud, the letter would have done its work. They might have shared it with another congregation. Copies were made. And, 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 and which letters get preserved? Well, that's going to be our next episode. But there's no fear of getting this message out. There's no concern about uh, it being only in one special language. Or that it comes to us in some sort of super heavenly language that nobody speaks and has to be translated and only five people know it. It's real. And the, and the, the mission is get the message out there. As many people as need it in their language, let's get it out there. It's very similar to what friends of ours are doing around the world right now, translating this scripture into multiple languages. So what you have in this process is the assembly of a book. A, a library book, or rather, I, I guess you'd really call it a book library, because it is a library bound in one book. Scrolls, these would have been, uh, you know, these writings going back even into the Hebrew Bible would have been found in different scrolls. You have the five scrolls, you have the scrolls of the Torah, you have the prophets. Those scrolls in time become manuscripts. They're copied. The New Testament documents become manuscripts. Those manuscripts then become books. They get bound together. And then when technology improves the way that we can print and mass produce these writings, uh, multiple copies, and then we know how to bind them, then they become what we call the Bible, a library in a single binding. Before that, it's, it's interesting because there would be collections that would circulate when they were handwritten manuscript documents. And sometimes uh, what, they, what you would have is you would have pieces of different Bible books that would have been a part of the collection of a, of a church community. And it's what we call the lectionary because that's what they would read from. And the way that you would hear, well, the way you would get Scripture scripture is that you would hear it the idea of sitting alone at home reading this for yourself that 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 was unknown in many christian communities you would hear it out loud read that's why the word of god is living you would hear it over and over again and so some reader would have this collection and some of the collections of scriptures they fascinate you like uh, some of these manuscript collections contain deuteronomy job and acts why would you put those three together? Well, hey, if that's what you could lay your hands on, you'd grab it. Because scripture and manuscripts are rare things. You would want to gather up as much as you could. You would collect them in whatever way you could. 
And if you got to borrow somebody's manuscript from another church and you had the time and talent and somebody who could write it all down, you'd write it all down, whatever it was. But people were interested in sharing Scripture. But how is it that we get to these 66 books? It's what we call the canon, the list. What's official, what's not? What about those other books that are out there? We've heard something about them. What about those secret books that show up in the... Uh, on the History Channel from time to time. You know, those secret Gnostic books that we're told that somebody banned and won't let it be in the Bible. What about all that? How do we know? Well, that's going to be the next episode is, is it canon? So come back next time for that. Well, right now we're going to uh, sing a song. I thank you for your attention. And um, during this song, if you need to partake of communion, that's prepared in room 100. Let's stand up, let's sing together, and then we'll be dismissed in prayer.